Before I read uh, this book to you, the book of Jude, only one chapter, 25 verses, I want to remind you that the Bible, if you want to understand the Bible, you need to realize that it is a storybook. The Bible is a story that has four parts. And I hope by this time in the year, you're getting used to hearing that. So the book is about God. It's a story of what God has done and will do. It's a story about God creating all that is. It's a story about our rebellion against God. And that, our rebellion, doesn't stop God from accomplishing his purposes in the world. So even though we've rebelled, God has purposed to save. And he promised in the Old Testament that Jesus would come. And Jesus would come as the true God-man. And he would redeem his people. And God's plan that we find out in the storybook is even greater than just redemption. What God's storybook tells us is that God not only redeems Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but that one day he will make all things new and he will restore everything so that to understand Christianity is to look at life in that way. That God created, we rebelled, Jesus redeemed, and one day all things will be restored. And this morning, we are just about to get to the point of focusing on restoration. Next week, we're going to start Revelation. Next week, we're going to start thinking about restoration and all that will be. And that is not to scare you. So if you've ever read Revelation and you're scared, you don't know the book. Hang in there, we're going to get to it next week. But before we get there, we get the front porch to the book of Revelation this morning. We're going to look at the book of Jude. And what I would like for you to see in the book of Jude this morning is this. The four-part story shows us that God is a keeping God. God is a keeping God. The four-part story tells us that our God is a keeper. He keeps his people. Now, listen to this, the book of Jude. Uh, I'm going to read the whole chapter to you, and I'll tell you in advance that this morning I'm going to be even more conversational as we go through Jude. So I'm not going to tell you the stops in advance for other reasons I'll tell you later if you want to know, but I'm going to try to slowly walk through this book with, with you today in a conversation, even more conversational than normal. So hang in there. Listen to this. This is God's word. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in, uh, in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Did you hear that word kept? Okay, good. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, 
those people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do, not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain vantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Quite a stirring book, isn't it? So much in here that... We're not really going to get to, but I'm going to reference it. So let's pray and ask God to help us, and then let's jump in. Oh, Lord, you've given us your word to study and digest. You've given us your word that we would be changed by it. Holy Spirit, you've guided those that wrote what we read today so that we would know that we can trust it. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would lead us to Jesus today that you would help us behold you, Jesus, as more beautiful and believable, that we would understand all that you have done and all that you are, and that we would respond to what we are learning with whole life commitment, that our whole lives would affirm that what you say is true, and that we would be freed to live honest lives of humility and integrity, where we are striving by grace to love you, Father, Son, and Spirit, to love others, to love our neighbors, and to be thankful for the place that you have put us to fulfill our callings, to serve our communities, and to follow you all of our days. Uh, work those things into us 
Enable us to hear the good news this morning. We pray this for your glory and for our good. Through Jesus, amen. If you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, or if you're here this morning and you're thinking about Jesus and Christianity, I want you to know that you have one of three stories. There are one of three stories that fit your life. Here's number one. Number one is that you questioned God, maybe who he is, what he's like, or you had questions about God. And it was through your questioning and wrestling and doubting that mercy met you. And when mercy met you in your questions and in your doubt, you were radically changed. Or situation number two. You were one of those people that didn't think much about your soul and didn't think much about developing your soul and didn't have many conversations about spiritual things. Whether you realize it or not, you're just kind of living your life trying to do life without God. And then all of a sudden, God's surprising mercy intervened and brought you to a brand new place that you didn't even know was possible. Or maybe it's situation number three. Situation number three is that you were sprinting as fast as you could possibly go toward the cliff of eternity. And you hated God, wanted nothing to do with God because of whatever had happened in your life or however you were taught wrongly about God and you didn't want anything to do with God. Hated him and were just sprinting toward the cliff of eternity with all that you are. And somehow and in some way, God's radical grace intervened and brought you to a place again that you could have never imagined. Now, I mentioned those three scenarios, and you might wonder, what in the world does this have to do with Jude? Application. What I just spelled out for you in those three scenarios are found in verse 22 and 23 of what we read together. Jude teaches us, and then he applies his teaching to our lives. And he gives us those three scenarios in verse 22 and 23. So how that applies to us is that we're going to take the teaching of Jude that he lays out and we're going to think about our lives. That's what's going to happen as we go through Jude this morning. Now before I give you the key idea, I want to give you a little bit more background information because I hope that you're stirred up and thinking about, well, which story is mine? Am I the one that doubted and had questions? Am I, am I the one that was trying to live without God? Am I the one who was just sprinting away from God as fast as I could? Well, as you're stewing and thinking about that, here's a little bit more background information about Jude before I give you the big key idea. This letter that Jude wrote was the letter he didn't really want to write. Look at verse three. You know, I really wanted to write to you about our common salvation. I really wanted to write to you about how amazing our salvation is. But I couldn't do that because I was compelled to write to you about how we need to contend for the faith. Did you see that? Look at verse 3. I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, but I couldn't. This was the letter that you didn't want to write. He had to write this letter to us to tell us that we need to contend for our faith. And when Jude says contend for our faith, what he, particular, what he particularly means with our faith is this. 
not our personal expressions of it, but faith as a system, faith as a body of truth. He wants us to contend for a body of truth that God has deposited. God has given an entire body of truth, a worldview, a way to think about all things. And Jude says, I want you to contend for that, the truth, what God's deposited, what he's given us. And when Jude says contend for that system of truth, Jude, when he says contend, he doesn't mean this. He doesn't mean that we need to pick up our weapons and go to war. He doesn't mean that in contending for our faith, that what he wants us to do is play spiritual whack-a-mole. That we are just learning information and then attacking everything that we see that's wrong. That's not what he's meaning. When he says he wants us to contend, this is what he's saying. He wants us to engage. The word that he uses actually implies this sense of agony. Not in a helpless way, but it's meaning like this whole life engagement. He wants our entire lives to contend for the truth. Not playing spiritual whack-a-mole, not picking up weapons and start smashing people. He wants us to be completely engaged with all that we are, with the truth that God has given. And that means that contend, I'll try to say it this way. Here's another example. Contending is not um, MMA, all right? Contending is not, is not mixed martial arts, where you're just trading punches with people. That's not what he's talking about. It's more like jujitsu. You know about jujitsu? Jiu-jitsu is actually when you take someone's movement towards you and you take it and redirect. It's not so much that you're just trading punches. It's that there's so much more engagement. It's holistic. It's not even all the time aggressive. It's that when people are coming at you, move that, use that movement and redirect. That's what Jude is talking about with contending. He wanted to write about our common salvation. But instead, because of what is going on, he's like, no, this is what I need to encourage you to do. You need to contend for the truth. What God has given, your whole life needs to be engaged in that purpose of contending for what God has given, the truth. And that leads to this key idea. This is the takeaway. This is what I want to show you from the text. Beloved, we need to contend because we are being kept. We need to contend, just like Jude says, because we are being kept. You see, the reason why Jude is not saying pick up arms and start attacking people, the reason he's saying that it's not like MMA, the reason he's saying it's not a fight is because Christianity and the survival of it is not dependent upon us. We are so insignificant compared to God's power. But make no mistake, he uses us. So when Judah's saying contending, he's saying contend not as though Christianity hangs in the balance of what you do. He's saying contend because God is keeping you. 
God's the one who's unfolding this stuff in history. God's the one that does all these things, and he uses us. But God never hangs Christianity in the balance and dangles that over his people as if to say, if you don't do this, Christianity will cease to exist. Beloved, if that were true, Christianity would cease to exist. Jude is trying to encourage us. Contend because you're being kept. That's the point I want to show you. That's what I want you to see. So that leads us to this question. Why do we need to contend? Why do we need to contend? Look at verse four. He says there are people who have crept in unnoticed. You see that? We need to contend because people have crept in and we haven't noticed it. It's gone under the radar. We haven't been discerning enough. We haven't been sharp enough. We haven't picked up on it. Jude says, contend for the faith because people have crept in unnoticed. And we don't get a lot of detail about what their teaching is, which would be, we would think, that'd be better if we got a bunch of detail about teaching, right? Because then we could just say, ah, eh, wrong, eh, wrong, but that's not what Jude says. Remember, he wants us to condemn through our faith that our whole life has to be engaged in this all the time. It's not a checklist, it's not a test. There are people who have crept in unnoticed and we don't get a lot about their teaching, but we get a little bit in verse four. They've perverted the grace of God. And, and here's all that we know about their teaching is that they teach that grace leads to disobedience. So if we are ever of the mindset of thinking that the grace of God leads us to disobedience and that disobedience is okay, uh, that's not good. That's not true. But what we do get in this book is an enormous amount of description about the character of those who have crept in unnoticed. We get an enormous amount of descriptions about character. Let me, let me refresh your memory about what we read. Listen to this in verse 12 and 13 and 16 and 19. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Verse 16 gets a little clearer. Those are poetic descriptions that I just read you of people that seem to have all kinds of promise and yet empty. Now listen to this. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Getting a little clearer, isn't it? People like us that constantly complain, malcontents, following their own desires, loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Verse 19, even clearer. These who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Jude says, contend, be aware. When you notice people are malcontents and obnoxious and self-serving, beware. When you recognize that people are doing things to gain advantage over other people, in other words, they're in things for power, beware. 
When you recognize that these people have an awful lot of promise, but at the end of the day, they never deliver. Beware. And then, for the bulk of the other verses, what Jude does is give us example after example after example. Look at verses five through eight in verse 11. He gives Old Testament examples of this. There were those like Cain, who, you know, was very jealous of his brother. Beware. There are those like uh, Sodom and Gomorrah that taught that sexual morality is okay. Beware. There were those like the angels that didn't stay in their lane and started doing things that God told them not to do. In other words, they rejected authority, the authority of God. Beware. Even when you get to verse 11, you get these three figures stacked up together. You get a sense that God is saying, look, beware. Take notice because as of yet, we haven't noticed these things and we need to. Like Balaam, the guy that was hired to curse God's people that said, I can't. But then, unbeknownst to a lot of people, public, he wasn't publicly doing things, but privately, he was encouraging God's people to do things that they shouldn't, and he was getting paid for it. So publicly, he would tell the other king, I cannot curse God's people. Privately, he was making deals to bring corruption into God's people. Even Korah, loudmouth boasters, Korah was uh, leading a coup against God's authority, against the leaders that God had appointed. That's what Korah was doing. They weren't submitting to authority and listening to authority. They were fighting against the authority that God had set up. And God ended up dealing with them. They sounded like they wanted to do good things. Moses, you have a lot on your plate. Moses, don't you need some help? And then when that didn't go the way they wanted, they started recruiting and building a coup and making plans to overthrow Moses and Aaron and others. Judas saying, contend for the faith because there are things that we haven't noticed that we need to take notice of. And it's not just that Jude gives all these Old Testament examples. He even gives examples from popular literature in the first century, things that are really removed from us. So he talks about Michael and the archangel, and uh, that's from a, a book that was written in between, before the coming of Christ, at the end, between the old, end of the Old Testament and when the New Testament started. He quotes a couple of those books because in the first century, Jews would know that literature, and they would know those stories, even about Enoch prophesying about the second coming of Christ. Again, that was in a popular book that was well distributed and widely known. Those stories were known. Jude is saying, I wanted to write you about one thing, but I need to write you about this. And it's not so much the teaching that I can delineate all the parts of, but you do need to pay attention to character. And when there are those in your midst that are serving themselves and causing trouble and rebelling against authority, beware. We have to engage with that. And besides all that, look at verse 17 and 18. Jude says, these are things that we were warned about. Jesus told us about this, and then he quotes Peter, he quotes Paul, and he quotes John. As if to say, here we go, y'all. Here we are serving the Lord Jesus. We have our own brokenness and our own mess. But remember what Jesus told us. And we need to beware of this. 
We need to be thinking about it. We need to be engaged with the truth. What God has deposited to us, we need to live holistically engaging that truth, living it and living it out and aware of those that are a threat to the truth. Well, that leads us to ask this question. How in the world are we supposed to contend? Why are we gonna contend? Well, because people have, have crept in. But, but how are we supposed to contend? How are we gonna do this? What does Jude say? How do we contend? Look at verse 20 through 23. This is what he says. If you wanna contend for the faith, this is what you need to do. This is what it looks like. Verse 20 and 21, he lays out habits for us. And the, in the command in verse 21, the only command in verse 20 and 21 is this. Keep yourself in the love of God. How about that? Oh, so you're not saying that I need to get a new weapon? Nope. So you're not saying that I need to practice more with my spiritual whack-a-mole? Nope. What do we need to do to contend for the faith? Keep ourselves in the love of God. How in the world do we do that? That doesn't sound very exciting. Sounds like there should be something more than that. Sounds like there should be something extra on top of that. Nope. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And here's what it looks like. Continue to be anchored in building yourself up in our most holy faith. Be anchored in apostolic doctrine. Understand what the apostles were teaching and anchor your entire life in that. What they said about Jesus and the significance of his life and death and resurrection. If you want to keep yourselves in the love of God, then go to the source of the love of God, the gospel. If you want to keep yourself in the love of God and contend for the faith, then don't forget about the cross and what the cross means. And don't forget that we believe in an empty tomb. We literally believe that Jesus walked out of a tomb. We literally believe that he conquered death in time and history. We literally believe that Jesus lived a perfect life. If you want to keep yourself in the love of God, beloved, don't ever forget the gospel. Don't ever move on from the gospel. Don't ever add anything to the gospel. Don't add anything to Christ and what he has done. Pour your mind and your heart and your soul and your emotions and the decisions you make into and through the gospel. To keep yourself in the love of God means that you must build yourself on top of the love of God, which is to build our life on Christ and who he is and what he has done for us. And it's to take that in over and over and over so that we want to know more about Jesus and we want to know more about his work for us on the cross so that it doesn't get boring to us. It doesn't become something we just assume, but it becomes who we really are. And then he says, not just building ourselves up on our faith, meaning anchored in apostolic doctrine, anchored in the gospel, but he says, pray. You know how to keep yourself in the love of God? Talk to him. Talk to your God. You don't have to set aside 15 minutes a day, although that, if you want to, that's fine. 
but talk to him. Talk to God. Tell him what's going on in your life. Tell him what you're frustrated with. Tell him what you're thankful for. Tell him what you can't figure out and give it to him. Trusting him to give you insight and wisdom and help. Talk to God. If you want to keep yourself in the love of God, pray. Pray. And then look what he says. If you want to keep yourself in the love of God, don't just be anchored in the gospel and pray, but be waiting for the coming of Christ and his mercy that leads to eternal life. That's what he says in verse 21, isn't it? So in other words, live with hope. You, you get to live every day, no matter how, diff, how difficult things are and how frustrating things are. If you believe that Jesus actually died for your sins and, and was crucified for you and rose from the dead for you and lived a perfect life for you, then you must believe that he's coming again. And if you believe he's coming again, then that means that you can live with that hope of his return and the restoration of all things, no matter what you're doing. So to keep yourself in the love of God is to be anchored in the gospel and talk to God and look forward to his return and look forward to the eternal life that we'll live where heaven and earth will be reunited. That's what it means to keep ourselves in the love of God. Now, here's the other thing it means. How are we gonna contend for our faith? Well, those are the habits, verse 20 and 21 I just laid out. But then, how about our relationships? That brings us full circle back to verse 22 and 23. In other words, when we started out, I said, if you're a follower of Jesus or you're thinking about becoming a follower of Jesus, you have one of three stories. Do you remember that? Hopefully it hasn't been too long ago yet. But what Jude does is he tells us in contending for the faith, here are the habits that you have in your life and here are your relationships. Because one of those three doesn't just describe you, but I bet that you have all three types of scenario, potential scenarios in your life with the people who are in your life. So in contending for your faith, again, it's not playing spiritual whack-a-mole, it's not MMA, it's not that Christianity hangs in the balance and whether or not you can keep this thing going or not, it's that you are completely engaged with your entire life with truth. And that means that if there are those in your life that you are close enough to, to hear their questions, for them to express their doubts, it means that as you are close enough to them that they feel safe enough to tell you about what they're wondering and thinking about, they may be frustrated with this or frustrated with that and doubting this, Jude says, meet them with mercy. Meet them with mercy. And if you have people in your life that you're close enough to so that they would communicate in one way or another, they just hadn't thought much about their own soul and don't have many conversations about spiritual things, or, or maybe they have expressed it clearly that they're just kind of trying to live their life without God. Jude says if you have the privilege of, of being close to someone who's in that He says that maybe you can surprise them with grace. It'll require a little bit of boldness, but maybe if you're walking with someone and they tell you about what's actually going on in their life, about how they're trying to live their life without God, 
maybe somewhere in there, you can surprise them with grace and say something that they perhaps have never thought about, didn't know God was that way. Or maybe if you're close enough to someone who is sprinting toward the cliff of eternity, hating God, mad at God, wants nothing to do with God, Jude's saying in verse 22 and 23 that maybe you'll get close enough to know that this is a horrible way to live. Maybe you might be reminded of that if that was your own experience. And maybe you might be so close that you're really frustrated with what is happening in their life. And you need to be cautious, not because of them, but because of you and our own weaknesses. And it may be in those moments that you're able to walk alongside them and you get close enough to where you realize they are sprinting away from God that you could show them some radical grace and that God would use that to absolutely undo them and bring them to a place that they didn't even know existed. See, Jude is saying contend for the faith not only with your habits, but in your relationships in what you see when you're developing relationships with people. For some, you need to be very gentle. For some, you need to be bold. And for some, you need to be really cautious. And that leads us to this. We need to contend because we are being kept. Look at verse 24 and 25. We need to contend because we are being kept. You see, when you hear this idea that Jude wanted to write about our common salvation, but instead he felt the need to write about contending for the faith and what that means with our habits and what that means with engaging other people, you can hear that and think, man, that's really overwhelming. That's going to that's gonna require that I play the long game with people. You mean I can't just manipulate them and Jesus juke them and get them into a corner and see if they can make a decision? Right. That's not a good thing to do. You've got to walk alongside people so that you can tell. Am I close enough with this person so that they're telling me their doubts? Or do I know what their concerns are? Do I realize who they are and what's actually happening in their lives? Wow, that sounds like a long game. That sounds like I may be uncomfortable. That sounds like I'm gonna have to, I don't know, be dependent on God for my relationships. I'd rather be in control. And what you're laying out here, Jude, means that I'm not, and that I gotta lean on God. And I gotta be really, at times, nervous about, oh, should I be bold here or not? Man, that sounds really overwhelming because I'm gonna mess it up. I'm not gonna do this right. And if you're feeling overwhelmed by that, listen to this. Now, our God is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless with exceeding joy. You want to talk about engaging because we are being kept. Look at what Jude is telling you. He's saying that our God is a God who keeps. 
and he keeps his people from stumbling. That doesn't mean that he keeps us from failure. We will fail. We are not perfect and will not be this side of glory. We will fail. But this is saying that we will never lose our faith. This is saying that we can't mess up so much that we are not genuine believers anymore. Because, beloved, if we could lose our faith, you want to fill in the blank? We would. This is saying that we contend for the faith because God is keeping us. And God is the one who keeps us from stumbling. He's the one that keeps us from ultimately losing our faith. Because again, if we could lose it, we would. And it's not just that he keeps us from stumbling. It says that he is able to present us faultless. Do you realize today, if you are believing in Jesus, that one day, because of God's grace, you will be presented to him through Jesus and you will be without stain, without defect, that you will be presented without any imperfection because of Jesus. Doesn't that free us up to live for him in the world that he's put us in? That we can contend for our faith because God is keeping us from stumbling and he's able to present us faultless, blameless before him. And he will do that with exceeding joy. Beloved, these words in Jude 24 and 25, I don't know that there are more beautiful words written in all the scriptures. And what happens when we really start to take in that we can engage and live out our faith knowing that God will keep us and knowing that he will present us that just leads to worship, doesn't it? Because you know what will happen. If we realize that we can contend and engage and love other people and live out our faith with others, and God is behind using everything and working in us so that we would grow and change and develop and mature, and that one day he's gonna keep, he will always keep us from stumbling and one day present us faultless, then you know what our response is? Well, to this God belongs glory and majesty and dominion and authority. That God's glory, the sum total of all his attributes, is at work to accomplish this in you and me. And not only his glory, but his majesty, that God is transcendent. And he does things that we can't even imagine in the same way that he is forgiving us of sins that we are not even aware of that we're committing. He is transcendent and involved in the world. And that leads us to proclaim the reality of his dominion and power. Because how in the world could any good thing happen if God doesn't make it happen? And how in the world could people be rescued and how in the world could people like us change if God's power hadn't moved in us first? How in the world could that happen? And then, not only is he glorious and majestic and not only does he have all power, but he has all authority. So that even when we live in times and go through things we can't understand, God is still the one who will one day make sense of it all. And oh, by the way, Jude adds, 
Don't forget, beloved, this existed before you. This way of God exists now, and it'll always be that way. There's not one millisecond, there's not one nanosecond where God is distracted from what he wants to do in the world. Not one nanosecond. And what we say to that is, amen. Which means true. So very true. Hallelujah. Thank you. True. Amen. Glory. Worship. Adoration. Thanksgiving. Pouring out our lives because of what God is doing and how he is keeping 